Welcome to the next show of today. Today we want to talk about brands and I'm happy to have you, Monique, here with us today. Welcome <laughs> to our you. little Hamburg studio. Our guest of today is John Schoolcraft. What, is, what does he do at Oatly? Well, you can't call him a CMO because they don't have marketing department in Oatly. He's the chief creative officer and he's a bit of a rebel, but you know, in the last 10 years, they've grown only to a 10 billion euro company. So yeah, it's amazing Ooh. what they achieved in the past years. Yeah. I remember I, I watched a, a little talk of his when I was in Malmö in 2017 with a creative exchange program with creatives from Hamburg visiting Malmö and Malmö people visiting Hamburg, which I really loved. And John was there presenting Oatly, which wasn't in the market in Germany or just about to launch and he presented this whole thing and his little Oatly universe and I was really impressed by the style that he had. Yeah, and, and also the way they've handled, you know, especially the American market entry with a Super Bowl ad with the CEO singing a song and he hadn't been told before that, well, it was just stay around and listen. Yeah, you know you made it when you're at the Super Bowl and when the Deutsche Bahn serves Oatly milk. That was like a big thing a few weeks back. Yeah, um, but it's also, it's from a rebel brand to a, you know, taking on the whole world brand. So. Yeah, and it's not, a diff it's sometimes a difficult ride, I reckon. Um, and I'm super excited to hear what he um, had to say in the conversation. But before we dive into that, we want to uh, listen to our keynote in residency, David Metten, who can't be here in person with us today, but we're super happy to have him live now sharing his thought. David, what do you have for us? Thanks, Ina. What's on my mind right now is actually a story that's been on my mind for a long time in many people's minds. It's the ongoing great resignation. We're seeing record numbers of people leaving their jobs. If you look actually back to November of last year, 4.53 million people in the US alone left their job in that month. That's the highest rate of job leaving ever on record measured in the United States. And that's why we have everyone talking about this great resignation. And there are some clear and simple reasons for it. First is there are lots of job vacancies in many um, Western economies right now. So that means people leaving jobs have jobs to go to, and that makes sense. But I think there's something deeper underlying it too. And I think we can all feel that, that people are not just leaving these jobs in order to go to other jobs, people are leaving jobs in order to not get another job at all. And actually the data bears that out too. People are reassessing their relationship with having a job and they're reassessing their relationship with work. And they're starting to ask if work in the conventional sense is the most meaningful way they can spend their life. And if they can revise their relationship with having a job and dedicate more of their energies to other things, to having a life in other ways. And I think that's a trend we're going to see play out really powerfully across the 2020s. It reminds me a lot of a previous guest, a brilliant guest we had on the next show, Albert Wenger, the VC, the venture capitalist, who wrote an amazing book called The World After Capital, because in the end, this is about people revising their relationship with capitalism and asking if what we used to call the rat race and having a career and accumulating money and prestige in that way is the right thing to do. 
And Albert Wenger says on a, on a systematic level, capitalism is no longer working the way it should in terms of directing people's attention towards the problems that we as a society need to solve. Some of those problems are around climate change. Some of those problems are around care for other human beings, care for our children, care for elderly parents. And we need to free up many more people to dedicate their lives to those kinds of problems. And that means we need to build new systems that reach in the end, he says, beyond capitalism. And he believes part of the answer to that is a universal basic income. Because, of course, if people are going to be leaving their jobs in record numbers, if they want to revise their relationship with work and with capitalism, well, they still need money. They still need a way to sustain themselves. And we probably as a society need to start thinking about how we support that. So I just think the changing relationship between millions of people and work in the traditional sense is a really powerful story that we're going to see evolve all through this decade. Definitely one to keep your eye on. I will be keeping my eye on it. But back to you all in Hamburg. We are going to talk to a superstar in the marketing field, John Schoolcraft of Oatly. And as Oatly always says, we play by our own rules. And their marketing department is called the Department of Mind Control. We're super curious to hear what their view is on marketing and the world that we live in now. John, welcome so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, just one correction there. We don't even have a marketing department. That's the golden rule. We, we have a creative department. That's so it. we're that's makers, we're not approvers. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> actually core thing that Oatly does differently from everybody else, right? Exactly. Nevertheless, the Department of Mind Control. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> John, um, first of all, welcome. Uh, as said, there are so many case studies now about the Oatly approach and how Oatly has done things differently. Now, first of all, I mean, I remember the city of Amsterdam completely covered, you know, everything outside was covered in Oatly. Um, first of all, maybe very quickly, Oatly was a brand that existed for a long, long time. And then at some point, you and the CEO managed to do a completely new approach and to position it differently. It's a plant-based drink that is now immensely popular all over the world. Um, Where did you start? I mean, you didn't start as the marketeer you are. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to take No, no, no. I, I know what you mean. You're asking me, like, how did I ever get started in this business to end up at Oatly, which is what we're going to get to maybe at the end of the interview? Scandiland news to Oatly, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I, I, was, I was born in, in, in Boise, Idaho, um, the middle of, you know, like cowboy country. Uh, I left there, of course, when I was three, not on my own will, but because my family decided to move. And we moved to Seattle, and I, I grew up in, in Seattle in a time long before grunge when it was just, you know, like lumberjackers and, a, a, you know, a, a fishing port. Um, it sounds really cool now, but um, it, it, it is, you know, always in, and will be still, still my city. And I ended up in... in um, Well, I should probably say that I started I started working maybe when I was 15. I did all kinds of weird jobs, like working in a department store. And there you could be like cleaning the floors or selling, you know, fine menswear or working in the kitchen. You know, I like did everything. 
Um, and, you know, ended up with all kinds of weird jobs, wash dishes, uh, security guard for Alice Cooper, you know, all kinds <laughs> of things. But I um, and I think that that's probably, you know, looking back when you're doing it, sweeping a parking lot with a broom, you're like, this really sucks. But I, I think having done that, it gives you perspective you know, later on, on everything you're doing. So eventually, yeah, you're right. I, I came to study in Sweden. I met my wife who was my girlfriend at that time. Um, and it was a weird time. It's, I mean, Sweden in like the eighties, you had to speak Swedish or it was like, now it's like, you don't have to speak Swedish at all, but there were like few, you know, I had this like university degree and thought I was all hot and everything's cool and rock on over to Sweden. And they told me I could work in a factory on the night shift. So <laughs> I, I started uh, teaching businessmen, you know, one on one English. And I started writing articles for like an industrial business newspaper about Swedish companies. Um, which was great because I was doing interviews with the CEOs and got to learn everything. But eventually I figured that there's something called copywriting and you can write actually less and write what you want <laughs> um, and probably make more money at it. So, so I started doing that instead. Well, you became a very successful copywriter, but then you went through a whole string of agencies working for clients. And, and if I understand correctly, um, you did feel that the way the industry is set up with the clients and the agencies and all the discussions between them, that did this, this ruined some perfectly creative, interesting ideas, right? I mean, through that whole, yeah, so those many years of working for those agencies, what, what, what did you take with you? Um, I, I think that I'm just naturally rebelling against everything. I mean, just my whole childhood in school was you know, it was, it, it was just kind of this rebellion against everything. And so I, I end up in an industry that's kind of a rebel itself, but still just felt it like, you know, I love the advertising business and hated it at the same time. I hated the clients insecurity. They were like insecure. They were afraid of their boss man or, you know, whatever it was afraid to do something that stuck out. Like, why are you coming to me for an advertising problem? So, um, I took a lot of chances. I started my own agency in Spain without any clients, without any, uh, at that time I thought the problem was account managers. <laughs> so we didn't have any account managers. We took them all away. And then you realize like, oh wow, as a creative, now you've got to be the account manager because someone <laughs> has to talk to the client. So I, you know, kind of learned, learned as I went. So what, but why, why, why did you hate the clients? I mean, did you hate? No, I didn't hate the clients. I oh, liked the clients, said... <laughs> but I, I hated the client's insecurity. You know what I mean? It was like, you need to have a good client and to have a good client, you have to create, you know, trust and security for them. And a lot of times that there are good clients. It's just like you end up with like, you know, like, um, just, I don't know, you're working in a marketing department, you're looking at numbers, you're trying to play it safe, you're making your boss happy first, um, you're making maybe the CEO happy second, and then you're worrying about what actually consumers think. And so I think that's the equation for me that, that doesn't necessarily work. And you need someone really bold to take chances that say, no, look, let's make things for people who are actually going to buy our products. Um, I'm generalizing a bit, of course, but it was just like, my my ex my experience and what i was saying about martin and lars is they they luckily ended up in a slightly different environment which allowed them to do you know brilliant work but um 
that was just my thing. And I was like a total rebel against that system, finding it broken. So, um, you know, when, when Tony, um, my friend became CEO of Oatly, I was like, wow, this is magic. Um, you know, now, then, called me and he yeah. said, can we do something? Maybe, maybe you want to get into that later, but it was just like, he called me and said, you want to do something? I said, oat milk, that sounds too weird. No, thank you. <laughs> Um, I'm not interested, oat milk, goat milk. I mean, we're never going to get people to try this. And then I figured, well, there's, if we take a, you know, rid of the marketing department, then I have no one to blame but myself. And I'm working directly with the CEO and we're only making things for people, not making things for our own approval. And that, you know, um, was a little trigger and an ability to say, okay, well, if you fail now, you don't have a client to blame. You only have yourself, which is the best situation I think you can be in. All right. So, so Oatly already existed. You arrived there suddenly as the friend of the CEO. You, you know, everybody will listen to you. What was the first thing you did? What was what changes did you make? Uh, well, I mean, you didn't even love the product, apparently, right? It's not like you thought... No, like I didn't understand the product at first. I, I thought, oat milk, wow, what's that? And you try it and it's like, hmm, that's different. And and so Tony became CEO and we the, the plan was, okay, the, you know, the board of directors at the time that hired Tony, that was the most risky, crazy, bold move maybe in, in, in Swedish business history. Here's a guy with like no background in the food industry, no background in running any kind of a larger company. He's had, had been incredibly successful running you know, nightclubs and restaurants and, and with lifestyle products. And they hire him to you know, change, you know, make this you know, an interesting product for not just you know, vegans and vegetarians, but a much larger audience. So. So Tony calls me and says, can we do something? And when we start working, the whole thing was, okay, so we need to change everything. <laughs> and you don't tell all the employees and the board, we're going to change everything from the beginning. What we didn't change was that entrepreneurial spirit that had been in the company for 30 years. I mean, there were like 30 or 40 incredible, wonderful, dedicated engineers in a small factory in the middle of the Swedish countryside. And so we just kind of found our way back to the roots brought back that entrepreneurial spirit in the, into the company that was originally and had always been there. Um, and then just, you know, we, we, we put together what we call the change book. It was just a, you know, blueprint, a strategy. It was actually a physical book with a wood cover. And that was done the first 30 days in, that Tony was CEO. It just like plopped down on the board and the, every, every employee's, um, you know, desk or wherever they were. And it was like, so here's the path forward. And you can imagine the board was like, wow, this is amazing. A lot of the employees are like, what is this? Uh, what, Why? What, what was the book? I mean, what, what direction was the way it forward? It was just a strategy document. It was just, you know, this is what we need to do. And it just kind of defined the situation. It just kind of defined uh, how we would act as a, as a company going forward. Um, like no one listens to brands. And, you know, it was just like, a series of statements and guidelines um, that that we would live by. And it was like so foreign, I think, at the time to everyone. And, you know, by the time that Tony takes over and we do the first redesign of the packaging, it's a year and a half. You know, it takes yeah. time. Yeah. And it's like a year and a half where everyone just has to believe 
and something they have no idea what they're believing about. Um, and so um, Tony was fantastic as a CEO at that time, very engaged in everyone, very interactive. We were 40 people. Uh, if you think back on it, it was like a wonderful time. But again, when the packaging finally came out, it didn't look anything like packaging. We called the whole company to, to the meeting room and <laughs> Tony says, this is our new packaging. And, and one of the people said, you know, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. You're going to ruin the company forever. It's so childish. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing it. And he saw some sort of pornographic, you know, illustration. He's like, and it's pornographic. It's like pornographic. That's the last thing it is. I don't know how your mind's working here. But Tony said, like, thank you for your, you know, thanks for your input. But this is what we're going to do. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, six months later or whatever, when the packages are rolling out of the factory, that same person came up to me and said, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I, I'm so proud to work at this company. These packages are, are incredible. And it's just like not everyone can see what you're doing. You know, not everyone understands. That's the whole thing is if you try to please people yeah. all along the way, you're just going to fail because People like what they've seen before until they've seen something new, and then they say, "Wow, that's that's really great." So, so, so I, I understand the, the the vision you both had for the brand in the communication with outside world. Is it something irreverent, something personal, something different from from what other people were doing? What was the big difference? Because if you look at it now, and of course, it's many years later, you think like, okay, it's uh, packaging, you know, it's a new package. But there was something else going on as well, right? It's in the approach that you took that, you know, um, defined Oatly immediately as something else. Yeah, so there was, there, there's a lot of um, personality of, I would say, originally maybe myself and Tony in the brand. Um, I, I would say, what do we do different? You know, if you go back 10 years, I mean, it's voice. It's a way of talking. We decided we were not a company with a logo. We're a group of humans here to help other humans make a few choices in their lives that are good for their body and the planet. And so that's the way we spoke and that's the way we acted. And, you know, if you called us or wrote to us at that time on Facebook or you called us up, that's... You weren't going to get a machine or an answer. You were going to get someone who was like really cared. Everyone at the company really cared. And so I think that that's the first thing that was very different is that we created this voice that was unique and was human and spoke to people. And, um, you know, um, we were also consistently inconsistent. We made things for ourselves. We didn't, we did, there were no marketing rules we played by. We didn't have anything in the beginning besides the pack. We had no budget. You know, we had the sides to our packaging. So we said, why don't we just use the sides and um, make people, first of all, the packaging design is just like O-A-T hyphen L-Y exclamation point. Why would you divide your name? Why is there an exclamation point? You know, it's just like, these are wrong. But I remember when we showed it, to Tony the first time he came in and said, Lee, 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 why? And it's like, exactly, exactly. And people should just don't give them answers, give them questions. And so the packaging was made so that you would walk in, pick it up. What is this? Turn it around on the side and maybe start read something you never expected a company to ever put on their packaging and then say, I got to try it. Yeah. And so we knew that if people tried it, 
they just might like it. <laughs> and I think you also hope to put everything in English right away, right? So it would be, yeah. you know, everybody then, could read it. And in Sweden, where we were biggest at the time, that was like a huge problem. I mean, I put my telephone number actually on the packaging because it was it was quite <laughs> a stupid thing number. to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a little side, you know, like yeah, a little yeah, burner yeah. phone or something like that. But I put it on there. And, and, and I would get people calling me up and they would be like saying to me, why are you writing in English? Are you trying to ruin the Swedish language? And I would say... <laughs> Well, if I was going to ruin the Swedish language, I probably wouldn't choose the side of an oat milk package to do so. <laughs> I would find a much bigger format. But I mean, the whole thing was is that, you know, it was we were in, you know, an international company, a global company. Um, we wanted that perception. We also knew that writing in English gives a lot of, you know, it's it's like people tend to, when they read in English, become someone slightly different, <laughs> maybe less judgmental. Maybe they're a little bit yeah. on holiday. A little bit you more know, aspirational a, as well. Trying a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole different feel to that, you know. So And it's, and basically, I couldn't write in Swedish. You know, it's like I can <laughs> speak Swedish, but I can't. We're getting back to the heart of it, the heart of the matter. <laughs> yeah, I can't write. That's basically it. You know, I can't write in okay, Swedish, so, so, you, so you the, I was yeah. writing the packs. <laughs> You have the package. <laughs> you have your own telephone number on it. You write it in your own language. Um, what, what, what are the, the because there are a few uh, campaigns you did afterwards that you know people considered at the time quite outrageous. I mean, there's been a lot of copycatting later on, but so but at the time, what, what were the most outrageous or the most um, you know the most surprising things you've done? Oh, I don't know. There's so there's so many things. That's the whole thing. There was never equation to make marketing. We were a small brand, and so you had to stick out. The first thing we did is we just did the packaging, and you know it was like it's like milk but made for humans. And the you know evil Swedish dairy lobby um, sued us for that. Um, and it was like you know thank you very much. <laughs> it's like wow, really a lawsuit for what? And they sued us because they thought that line made milk sound old-fashioned and out of date. Yeah. yeah. Grammatically, it's only talking about us. It's just saying it's like milk, but it's designed for human consumption. And if you think about it, you know, like cow's milk yeah. is designed for what? Baby cows. You know, it's like 99.9% of the biologists in the world will, will tell you that. Um, one you can probably buy off. Did, did they win? Um, did they win that that court case? Because no, we lost the court case. We lost the court yeah, case. Yeah, because just last um, week, last two weeks ago, um, there was a campaign in the Netherlands saying dairy is harmful for animals, and the Dairy Association fought it, and they won. They were not allowed to say this in public that you know producing dairy is actually harmful for calves and animals. I mean, it, it's it's a that's a strange thing because. Yeah. You know, we lost the, it's like milk, but made for humans um, line in Swedish court. It, it's not so strange that we lost that because, you know, the milk industry is very powerful in, in Sweden. Mm. And we were questioning something that is like incredibly emotional. It's at the, you know, at the center of, you know, number one commodity product in the supermarket. And we we're like saying it's what? Not for humans? Which we weren't. We were just saying... The funny thing is, is that there's been, you know, EU rulings on that line later. And one of the EU rulings said, you know, like we should be allowed to use it because everyone knows that milk is not necessarily good for humans. Every I, I can, 
I can send nice? that for you. It was really funny. <laughs> it was really funny that we've gone that far, but it's, um, um, yeah, it was, it was no, but listen, the thing is, it's like, we realize as we, as in, in our whole history, that if you're trying to, you know, contribute to society, to find new ways going forward, to help people make better choices when it comes to their food, and to also be thinking about having a planet that we can live on in the future, you know, future generations, we're not going to, you know, make friends with everyone. <laughs> um, we're, we're not looking to make enemies. We're just looking to, you know, create some societal change that can be, uh, you know, and, positive. Yeah. And so, and so that has, that can be bumpy. You know, it's, it's, it's bumpier and bumpier for us as we go, the bigger we get, we become more of a target because we stand for certain things. And, you know, that's okay. We, we've never said like, we intend to make everyone happy with every ad we make or every campaign we make. Um, that's never been the intention, but you know, we can make some people really love us and really, um, believe in what we're trying to do. And we try to work a lot through proving things and not just saying things like doing things for real. So if you look at our campaign, we've, we had a campaign last year to stop amendment 171, which was, you know, a, a European, uh, amendment that was designed to basically, um, you know, stop the way that you pat you, we couldn't package um, oat milk in the same cartons that dare, you know, it was like very strange legislation. Um, and that campaign also a fantastic campaign. I don't know, it's like everything that you look at historically, we're always saying like, when we come up with something new, like, this is the best thing we've ever done. Yeah, okay. But, and it's, but, but, and it's yeah. like, that's the that's the drive forward for us is, is like, no one's looking back everyone's just looking forward. It's just like, and I think if you're working in, you know, the creative services, if you're working at an agency, that's what drives people to make the best work of your life or the best idea that anyone's ever seen. And we've created, you know, like a creative department where that's basically on the table every single day. No one's yeah, stopping us. Let's, no. dis let's discuss how you organize this, because you said there's no CMO, we're all creative people here, so you're the creative officer. Um, how how do, you, do you do everything within the company, or do you work with a number of different creative agencies and then bring them in? What, what is, because you, you had this client experience yep. with the Ancho clients and everything, so you have the chance to completely organize things differently, right? So how did you organize this? So we have tons of rules, but we break them. Um, I would say it, the first thing was, is that both Martin Rinkvist and Lars Elfman were at Forsman and Bodenforce. So we started out with, it was just basically me. I was the creative department. Tony came to me one day and says, John, you probably think you can do everything by yourself, but you can't. Um, very happy for his, you know, wisdom being the CEO. And so, um, we started working with a very small team of Forsman and Border Force from the beginning. And it wasn't like, you know, full team. It was basically Lars and Martin and myself, um, account manager to keep us on, 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 on track, but it was us. And some, you know, I was writing the copy, Martin at the agency was approving it. Um, you know, it was like a very collaborative, we were just working together. Um, it's interesting. It's, so, it's interesting. Turn around. Uh, you write a copy. The agency approves it. Usually, yeah, it's we're the always other way laughing. Yeah. Like Martin, you want to be the client. You know, you, <laughs> now you get a chance to be the client, and and so. But it was very. It was like very collaborative. And when we thought it was good enough, we said it's ready to go. 
There, there's nobody. So here's the way it works. We're, we're sitting in the middle of an oatmeal company. So there are no briefs. Like we just walk around and have meetings. We discuss things, philosophical discussions, business discussions, whatever it may be. And when we find something that we find interesting, we just extract it and start making something out of it. And so, um, and we change our mind whenever we you know, come up with a better idea, we can change it whenever we want. So we kind of brief ourselves, do the work and then approve it. When it, we think it's ready, <laughs> it can be approved. The only person in the company that can technically stop anything is Tony, he's the CEO. Um, but here's the unique and, and thing. And he's your friend, so he will not say no. He's my friend. <laughs> that doesn't mean if he hates something, yeah, he yeah. wouldn't try to stop it. Yeah. But Tony is very, very good at what we do. And usually he has a little different angle to it. So I would say most of the time, Tony will make things better. <laughs> you know, he'll find something else in it that will make better. However, it sounds like we're just walking around like these prima donnas that do whatever we want. The thing is, is that we work so tightly with innovation, with the commercial team. It's like, it's a collaboration. As long as they can tell us what their problems are, we can give them what they, what they need. The thing is, is that um, someone working in the commercial department is probably not very good at making an ad or writing copy. If they were, they would be working in the creative department. So let us make the decisions on what we do there you just tell us the problem. So it's very, very collaborative. We've like torn down the walls of, of how things are done. And you can have people yes. in the sustainability department coming up with ideas for a campaign or innovation or finance. It doesn't matter. Everyone's, um, you know, like collaboratively working together. And I think that if there's any, you know, Oatly secret, that's it. It's entirely different from how other companies work. So, so you have this in, internal cooperation and a very open atmosphere and a very creative spirit. Um, maybe you could tell me the story about, because Oatly going from a Swedish uh, company to, you know, this global company that it is now, it, it entered the American market and how do you do that? Of course, you need a Super Bowl ad, right? Maybe you could tell that story. What happened there? Yeah, well, so so um, our, our American history is probably like three years or four years long. So it actually started um, before, when we came into the U.S. We didn't have Super Bowl money at all. You know, there was like absolutely no money. And it was like everyone's like going to the supermarkets, going to retail. And it's like, really? Do you know how many products there are in, in the retail shelves? Like okay, we got good packaging, but maybe we're going to get one slot or two slots. People aren't going to find it. So instead, we, we, we had just developed this Brista Edition product. It was technically by far the best plant milk for coffee. So we didn't go to retail. We started working with the top-end um, coffee roasters and um, coffee shops in the country, and we had this product that was great. And so we just had you know, built a team of people from the coffee industry that went around to the coffee industry and talked to them. And the first thing was like, you know, get the fuck out of here. Another plant-based milk, we don't want that. No, thank you, we've had enough. Well, you know, almond and soy are not very good in coffee and almond and soy don't really have any technical um, characteristics that let them foam, microfoam and, and stuff like ah, that. So we would just leave okay. the product there and come back a week later and when we came back they were like what is this this is amazing it's so perfect <laughs> with coffee and so we went from you know how are we going to break into the u.s market to having supply problems 
you know, in, I mean, there was the first great oat milk shortage six months after we launched in the U.S., and all of Brooklyn had signs on every cafe, no, we don't have oat milk. Um, you know, so it just like it exploded. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's great, you know, supply outstrips demand. Um, it's great if you're working with me, like, oh, wow, our demand, you know, so, so great demand. But, you know, it's also a problem because... Yeah. You're turning down people's business. You've got a little coffee shop and people want to come and you you've, you can't supply them. So again, small company working around the clock, hand delivering stuff, getting everything out. And eventually we grow and, and they're, you know, we, I don't know. The Super Bowl is such a weird thing. It's like the showcase of everything. I, I grew up, you know, watching Super Bowl ads, but I never understood how big it is until you actually have an ad in the Super Bowl. Yeah. And our ad was like such an anti-ad. It was, it was, I remember. It. So, so here's the thing is, well, when we first started out 2014, we made 30 commercials with Tony as the CEO. And um, because we thought, Everyone's going to love Tony if they can meet him, but Tony didn't want to be famous and he didn't want to be the face of the company and he really hated it, but he trusted us. And so we said, Tony, we're going to put you in all these 30 commercials. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And of course he, he did it. So we wrote him these fake scripts. They were just fake. So he would start focusing on that and, and learn everything about it. And so the night before we're doing the first shoot day, he calls me up and says, John, these scripts are terrible. This isn't going to work. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Tony, but let's try tomorrow. And if it doesn't work, we'll just cancel the shoot and do something else. <laughs> but the whole thing was just so he would be focused. And then we just filmed him while we talked to him. So um, this was basically a big practical like, joke you put on, on your friend, yes, right? <laughs> yes. He would be standing, and there's one he's standing in front of a flight post, like, when are we going to start? It's like, but Tony, just talk. You know, people want to see the real CEO. They don't want an ad. And he's just like, this is terrible. I don't believe in it. And that's what we ran. And one of them was we said to him, because, you know, we're friends, so I know Tony's like a musician. And at one time in his life, he was like a pop star in Japan. <laughs> He's half Japanese anyway, so it's like, you know, it's like, and so we thought like, Tony, why don't you sing a song in the middle of an oat field? And he's like, I'm not doing that. And so I don't have time. I'm the CEO of this oatmeal company. I, I don't have time to write a song. So we wrote him one. And then he thought it was like impinging on his creative freedom or something like that. So, so he wrote his own and he showed up on set and we had an 80s synthesizer with an extension cord and we stuck him in the middle of an oat field. And he sang this song that he had written himself. And we were like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. So as we, that was 2014. As we started to grow, I always said to him like, Because, Tony, because in the ever... end that ran, right? That ran as a... Yeah, as because a, I said to him like... During 16, the Super Bowl. 17, so everybody seven, in the US. 2017, <laughs> if we ever, ever become successful in the, in, in the US, I want to put you singing on the Super Bowl just because... <laughs> I would find it hilarious that 200 million people would get to see you watch you sing. And he's like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And so that year we decided, no, we're going to do a Super Bowl ad. And I never told him what we were going to put on, put on the Super Bowl until like, I don't know, it was like January. He's like, John, John, I have to see what we're going to put on the Super Bowl. I'm the CEO of the company. I got to approve it. And I said, you, you know what we're going to put on the Super Bowl? It's already sent in. It's you singing your song. And he just... I, he literally just started laughing. 
The problem is, is that it's kind of a troll to the whole advertising industry. Like there is an equation of how you make a Super Bowl ad. You spend a fortune on production. You put a celebrity in there and you tell a funny joke. And we did none of that. We had Tony on a, I mean, the production um, cost for that film was less than the catering budget (laughs) on probably every single other film. So we just ran it and thought, this is hilarious. Um, This is who we are. And I, you know, it's like the minute it ran, the internet just exploded. Like half the people thought it was the best ever. Half the people thought it was the worst ever. And that's that's the exactly what you wanted, of course. Yeah. yeah, and the cool thing is, is that because we understand internet culture, we thought people are going to hate this. I mean, the, here was the goal: to make the worst Super Bowl ad in history. <laughs> one, two, to make the best Super Bowl ad in history, or three, to make the weirdest Super Bowl in history. And we had all those headlines the next day. <laughs> and what we did is that we made these T-shirts because we figured people are going to just start hating on this. So we made these T-shirts that said, I hated Oatley's Super Bowl uh, ad. And as soon as it ran, people could like, if you were in Tampa or New York or LA, we had like bike messengers <laughs> delivering these before the fourth quarter. You know? So I just like, I hated it. You signed up. Those sold out in like, I don't know, like, not 12 seconds, but like <laughs> five minutes or something like that. And they were gone. And it was just like, oh, fuck, Oakley gets it. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're trolling everyone on this. We just mentioned that we understand internet culture. And you describe packaging, you describe Super Bowl. I mean, over the last 10 years that you were at Oakley, internet culture has been uh, social media culture and lots of other things. How have you made use of that culture? How have you worked with that culture? Um, wow, I, internet culture, it's, so, it's changing so fast all the time. So I, 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 I wouldn't say that Oatly's been like someone who's like tapped into all the trends and tries to utilize all the trends. We're not really looking at that. But you, I, I think what I would extract from that is just the difference, you know, the exchange of information, the availability of everything becomes so fast that it kind of changes the way that we, I would say it's like a very offline approach to the online world is that we look at like, what do people demand of brands? Everything's there. You can see their whole history, all these things. It's changed so much in the last 10 years. Like. Um, again, this is not necessarily going to answer your question about the internet itself, but if you look 10 years ago, we were like, you know, a very, trying to be very transparent, um, try to be very open, um, had an opinion. If you look at the packaging sides, it said, we're trying to be a good company. Um, you know, and it, it, it said, you know, it was like very, like, here's what we believe. And there were thoughts about, you know. I don't know. We've been very vocal about, you know, the capitalistic system we live in, people's rights, um, you know, all these type of things. And it was like now everyone's, you know, because of the Internet and how fast things spread and how available, um, how things can blow up so quickly. I mean, every company's trying to be woke, but they're trying to be, you know, that, oh, we need to have a purpose because it's demanded of us by by customers. And it's like. I, I don't know. We we were probably, you know, years, 10 years ahead of that. Um, 
but we were doing it not to try to you know sell a product to have you know have purpose to sell a product we just thought there should be like a meaningful reason for going to work and if you were going to have a business there should be a meaningful reason behind it both for consumers who are buying your products and um for people who are working at the company so um i know that's not a technical digital internet question but I would think that is the thing that's been so profound about the internet is it's kind of like changed the expectations people have on, on brands and on people and on, 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 you know, because everything's so accessible. Okay, and, and do you think, I mean, as I said, uh, this is um, a, a show that very often talks about uh, the new, new thing and the digital developments and so forth. I mean, and at the moment there's this, uh, I mean, it's almost like, you know, many years ago, sort of an excitement, Web 3.0, and there's other things we can do with the internet, and there's the metaverse, and there's NFTs, and there's DAOs and stuff. I mean, do you have a feeling as well that we have come to a new phase of the internet, or do you have the feeling like, oh, now people are what they are, when the internet is just our interface with I them? I don't know, you know, it's like my my personal, I mean, there's, there's no, like, the company's not sitting there going NFT crazy. And it's like our focus has always been on like finding solutions to make, you know, in the next 10 years, we're, we're facing a climate crisis that it will change from year to year. And so I think our focus has been more on that, on the things that we can do to stop that. I can tell you probably the metaverse is not, well, there may be a solution in the metaverse, but what is the carbon impact of the metaverse? <laughs> no one's like even thinking about what what that's gonna how how are nfts gonna and i know there's someone out there who's probably watching this like he doesn't get it the metaverse can solve it all um through nfts we can build great cool excellent um i'll i'll you know it's like if if there's a solution in that it's fantastic it's just like i'm i'm not like spending certain things on like oh wow that's the that's the new thing so let's do that like yeah. we're we're not a lot of people spend their whole time looking for for trends in marketing or or something like that and it's just like why would you do why would you go where everyone else is going um <laughs> because then you're just like everyone else so i i again this is a strange answer and maybe not as clear yeah. as you would want it to be but i would think like the metaverse can be good um and nfts can be good um, but right now we're, we don't have our focus, you know, all our energy on creating a metaverse solution. And I just, you know, where, where, where does all your focus is, go? What is the thing you focus on? Just on finding ways to interact with people to help them understand, you know, to help them understand there, you know, a lot of people know us and love us. A lot of people have no idea what oat milk is. Yeah. Um, and so if we're ever to make an impact, a wide impact, it's not just necessarily the coolest, hippest, um, coffee shops in Amsterdam. I mean, that's that's our heritage. That's where we've been the whole time. That's where we continue to service and focus and, and, and develop new things and find ways for, you know, help them become more sustainable. But we also need to like have a wider audience. Like what about the family in, in Texas or Oklahoma or Wisconsin or wherever it may be? Who you would think like, they're never gonna like oat milk, why not? Yeah. It's actually, it's actually <laughs> you know, what it's, I wanted to ask. I mean, you started out with this very rebellious brand fighting, you know, fighting the others, the dairy industry, and um, and 
But now you are a huge, huge company with a 10 billion market cap and investors from all. I mean, your criticism of capitalism is valid. And at the same time, you are riding this huge wave of what's possible, right? Absolutely. How, how do these two things combine? I mean, can you... Because it's not just that um, the rebellious nature is fun and, you know, how can you keep it? It's also about... We were rebellious when we were the underdog, but now we actually need to convince, as you say, the whole wild world. It's not no longer about fighting a few giants, it's like convincing everybody, right? But we can still have this totally rebellious. It's like, it's the same people behind the company making things. The only thing that we've done differently is we've become successful and we've grown. And so it's like, so are we gonna change? Why? You know, it's like, I just think like, um, yeah, there, it's, it's, it's like we have a different platform. We have a wider audience, but we, we still know that dairy is 90% of all the milk consumed. Wow, that's a huge runway. Should it be like that? Can the planet withstand that? Is it good for, for humans? Those questions, you know, are, are things that we're working with all the time. So it's like... Um, I, I don't see us being less less rebellious whatsoever. You you get listed on the stock exchange and there's a, a set of rules that are that are potentially new because you're a public company and those are things that you need to follow by, but those those in themselves are just are are, are in place for a reason <laughs> because you know people can invest in you. So that that that's cool. That doesn't mean that we can't be just as rebellious. Um, and just as active and looking for new ways. We're always looking for new ways to trigger, you know, people to maybe think, what's this oat milk? And we know that like you run ads in a magazine and you get hundreds of complaints because people hate your ads. And it's like, you know, we run ads in like the Atlantic magazine, a very intellectual magazine. And people will just like, I love the negative feedback because wait, you took time to write to us. You actually read a magazine ad, yeah, looked up the and email then you address, sat down and, and, and wrote an email and considered this. Wow, they're going to try it. And if they try the product, that's all we can ask. Then the product has to do itself. We make an amazing product. And so, so, you so know, it's like it, handoff, I mean, go product. Yeah, how does this work? Because um, and we almost have to wrap up, but how does it work? So you, you're now not only a successful company in that you sell a lot of oatmeal, but you're also a big company, right? There's lots of people working there. So there might be at the top of a very small uh, community, but can the people in the company still feel part of that creative spirit and contact? And is there, because that must get hard now. I mean, if it's a really big company, it, it, it's hard. It, 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 yeah. And I think if you come that you'll, you will find all kinds of answers if you were to ask that question, you know, some people immediately find it and that spirit is like everywhere, but we're, you know, living in our computers now, we're not everyone's in the office. We've grown as you grow, you recruit new people. They come in from different company cultures <laughs> where you do things, maybe ordinary. So I mean, those are things that we're dealing with all the time. Mm. How do we get people quickly into the Oatly company culture to realize it's okay to make mistakes, um, that we need to fail in order to succeed? You know, it's like, there's all those things that, that sometimes can take a little bit of time. Absolutely, those are organizational things, but staying true, being focused, continually having a voice that's, that's not wavering, that's not scared, that's fearless, that's fighting for the, you know, the right things, um, that's providing a meaning for people who are working there and, 
and consumers too. I mean, that's 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 not that's not going away. That reader of the Atlantic who pages through the magazine or reads it online and then looks you up and and then sends. Do you read all those mails? Are you still sort of? Oh, uh, I I don't, but I always ask the community team to actually like don't send me the the positive stuff because it's just I don't need like a pat on the back. Send me that stuff where people are angry because I always then I will a lot of times I would write back to them. You know, I would write an email back to them, thank you very much, you know, for for actually taking did it, you know, 20 minutes to sit down and write. Mm. It's okay. You can, you know, dislike our ad, it's fine. But maybe someday you can, you know, um, feel like maybe you would like to try that. You know, it's like, it's just like that whole human thing of actually taking the time and interacting on a human scale and not just letting, you know, the automation of computers do everything. That's where I think it's like so key. Yeah, yeah. So going from that, you know, uh, phone, address, phone number on the packaging to, uh, you know, Responding to the worst emails of the yeah, the whole thing is like a, a series of very um, stupid decisions that are very naive but optimistic at the same time, and they continue to make stupid, naive, optimistic decisions even when you're bigger. I, I, and the market's watching everything you do. Okay, I, I definitely hope you can keep that spirit going in Oatly. And I actually hope a lot more companies could do this. I mean, this is, doesn't have to be only you. I mean, I like that. I mean, really, really hope more companies can feel you that. You need a CEO who understands. Yeah. If, if there's one thing, it's like, you know, because the CEO is the leader of the company. And as long as the CEO understands the magic of, of that, it's possible. If they want a you know organizational chart, Excel uh, test result measuring uh, system, it's hard yeah. to create that. Okay. Well, thank you very much for those <laughs> insights. Very much uh, enjoyed that conversation. Um, we do have one last thing. Those are the five questions. There's a thousand people going to a new planet. You're one of the thousand people that can go. But we have five questions for you. So there's a new planet, it's bare, there's nothing there yet. A whole new society needs to be built up. It's completely new. So we take some things from Earth and you get these five questions. So let's try and see what your answers are. So you're one of those thousand people. Name one luxury object that you would want to take with you on that trip. Uh, so I'm guessing this new planet has um, an atmosphere and it has water and it has, it's kind of like our planet. You don't have to bring that. It's livable. Yes. Okay. It's livable. So here's the deal. 1,000 people on a planet. I'm going to bring a 9.6 Gato Heroi smooth operator surfboard. There's going to be no one else out surfing. I'm going to have the waves to myself. I'll have a wonderful life. Um, the 999 other people can focus on building the society. <laughs> I, I've been so busy here in this life that uh, I'm going to have fun there. So that's my I, I, answer. I have some idea of what will happen after Oatly now. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you, I'm yeah. going to planet next. <laughs> exactly. Okay. If you take 1,000 people on this trip, what is the one book you would recommend each one of them reads? What's the one book you feel people should read before they start a new society? Before they start, well, um, hmm. So I would think like something like Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums 
because um, there's like this wonderful vision of spending an entire summer in the North Cascades Mountains, which are just outside Seattle as a fire lookout. And I often think about the visuals that I got as I was reading that. And I would think like the new planet may be slightly different. So if everyone goes to the new planet with that in mind, what it was like before there were fires every single summer, it might help people, you know, respect a little bit um, this new planet. I, it's a cool planet, right? I mean, it's like, it's a good planet, the new one. It's, like, it's interesting. We've done, we've done this round, I think now, 30 times, and you're the first one asking about the details of the planet. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking like, no, no, you no, know, you're, haven't you're, you ever spent time thinking about, um, oh, if you could create a country or you could create a planet or if that was even possible, um, what you could do? I think it's like, I, 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 I have, that's why it's really weird for me that these Bitcoin millionaires are buying buying islands because I you know it's always like I've always played with the thought of if you could create you know the perfect yeah anyway <laughs> buy an Let's island do it and, here. and, and okay. like you, yeah. we have the book we have the surfboard okay yes <laughs> there's one exceptional person you can take along who would you bring so I, I am living with my wife and my family all the time. It's been locked down. It's been amazing. It's like, but you told me like I couldn't bring them. They're already coming. They're, they're not your uh, exceptional They're already person. coming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would say that Tony's no longer my friend. <laughs> and then I would bring him. <laughs> Very good. Just because, just because um, it's fun to put him in situations that he hates to be in. And so maybe he wouldn't want to come along, but... Um, All right. <laughs> and you never know, you know, we, we might need some popular music on that island as well. And he can do the singing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got one for you. Um, name one law that um, forbids something in this new world. There's something that exists here on Earth that will not exist there. What would it be? What I get to make a law? Yes. Okay, here's my law. Um, no one is allowed to wear a New York Yankees baseball cap. <laughs> I hate the Yankees. Um, and if I could like buy every hat and, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't want to buy it and destroy it. It's very it. specific. I think we'll, that's, we'll, my law. that's my law. No Yankees logos anywhere. We'll get it passed. It's no problem yeah. at all. And then the last one. Name one tradition from planet Earth that you would want to bring along to this new planet. Making, making pizzas. Making pizzas in... Um, and wood-fired ovens. <laughs> is, is that a tradition? I think that's a tradition. It's remarkable. Most people actually, most people actually take food, shared food, as a tradition to bring along. So it's either the Christmas lunch or it's the dinner time together or it's the communal meals. So I think pizzas, they so would I'm go like a long way. So I'm like the least traditional, like all the traditional things. It's just like Sweden's the traditional country. and. I'm just like not that traditional, so um, I would just think like it's kind of a tradition to make pizza. So yeah. I wouldn't want to like go there and it was like no pizza. <laughs> Imagine if you went to this planet and it's like no pizza. Okay, we have pizza. We have a surfboard. You have your best friend with you. I think you're going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be cool. <laughs> John, thank you so much Excellent. for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation today and also thank you for watching this episode. If you don't want to miss any of our future seasons, please simply subscribe to our newsletter on nextconf.au. Finally, I'd like to thank our partners Accenture, Factor 3 and T3N for their support. Bye-bye.